0: Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah? Find your way to the 53rd chapter in the book of Isaiah. As you're turning there, let me give you some context. Isaiah was a prophet of God in the days of Israel, whose ministry ranged from 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. If you're new here this evening, uh, something that I always do, I say open your Bibles to X, and then I start giving you context as we read it. You You go, oh, okay, I know what's going on. So, Isaiah, he's a prophet. Um, he's in the days of Israel, 740, 680 B.C. His prophecies and his divine oracles come in the reigns of four of Israel's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These four kings overlap some really tumultuous times in the history of Israel. If you thought, uh, you know, if you thought our last string of presidents was, was something else, uh, you know, they got nothing on Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This is a tumultuous time for the history of Israel. Uh, When Isaiah gets into ministry, the spirituality of the people had grown really cold, and the nation was in the final stages of collapse. The north of Israel had been annihilated by the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom, that was referred to as Judah, was spiraling into the same fate at the hands of a different empire, not Assyria, but Babylon. The prophet Isaiah was called by God to give a heavy prophecy involving a pronouncement on God's people. You see, what was going on with Assyria and Babylon wasn't their doing. It was actually God's doing to discipline His people who were in a covenant relationship with Him, which specifically under the prophet Moses had stipulations of, if you do X, then you get Y, if you don't do X, then you get Z, and so on and so forth. And so in their relationship with God, they had grown cold toward God. Uh, but God, being a loving God and a father, disciplines His children as any loving parent would and so the nation is undergoing divine discipline. Isaiah begins ministry in, in the midst of this transition, so it was a difficult time. Now, Isaiah's prophecy isn't all doom and gloom, however. It is dark in places, to be sure. But woven into the doom and gloom is, are these prophecies of hope for this figure of a Messiah who's going to come, and is going to fulfill the covenant that God made with the people. And for all those stipulations under Moses of, you know, you do X, you get Y, and if you don't do and whatever, this figure, this messianic figure is actually going to come and he's going to handle that too. You see, he's going he's to die for you. He's going to come as a sacrifice for you, the, the penultimate sacrifice of all time, in fact. So, so Isaiah is doom and gloom in terms of the immediate history, but woven into it are these prophecies of this messianic figure who is going to come, who's going to restore the people, reconcile them in their relationship with God, end this period of discipline and bring in a a new era that not only would be for their flourishing, but for the flourishing of the world. Isaiah 53 contains an amazing prophecy about this messianic figure who Isaiah also describes as as a, a suffering servant. He has much to say about the suffering servant. So let's draw our eyes into the text of Isaiah 53 and let's read it together. Who has believed your message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him he was oppressed he was afflicted he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep that is silent before its shears so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due his grave was assigned with wicked men he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth but the lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, And he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered among the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. Now this is an amazing prophecy. And in my message tonight, I want to theologically reflect on this prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ on Good Friday, some 2,000 years ago. The part in there about him being pierced through is particularly interesting because recall what I said, it's Assyria and Babylon time. The Roman Empire hadn't stepped on the scene. The practice of crucifixion wasn't something that existed when Isaiah wrote this. So his prophecy of piercing and the details that he gives hundreds of years in advance is meticulous and goes to show the veracity not only of the scripture but of the claims of the historic Jesus of Nazareth and the message, his gospel, his good news. I hope to look specifically at this passage tonight at the theme of God's anger in this passage and unpack what it means to say God is angry and why it is a very reasonable thing and in fact an important thing to our faith as Christians to affirm that God is angry at sin. Now discussion of God and His anger uh, might sound curious. In fact, maybe tonight you got a friend to come, and you're like, oh, great, that Matt's on one again. I finally got my friend to come, and he's talking about how angry God is. That, that's great. They're, they're definitely not coming back. Uh, well, I hope you will, but discussion of God and his just anger is something that has really fallen on hard times in our culture, of course, and sadly in the church today. Uh, We are a long ways from 1741 when Jonathan Edwards preached his famous message titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now the title alone for most churches uh, wouldn't work. You know, you you got a visiting preacher, you go, hey, uh, we're going to put the title of your sermon up on the PowerPoint or whatever. What is it? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Oh, you know what? I I think we're fine. You know, uh, you can go down to the First Baptist Church with that one. Uh, we're we're fine. Thanks, but no thanks. The title alone would be enough for most churches to to cancel that preacher. Here's the thing, though. We have to keep in mind that in the 1700s, that message was just as scandalous as it is in in the 2000s. People don't want to hear that. Uh, But Jonathan Edwards preached it anyway, and history records, rather than people being turned off and not coming back, this was a part of the historic Great Awakening, when churches were filled to the brim, As preachers preached honestly and openly, hard doctrines, like the doctrine of the anger of God, uh, churches were filled. In fact, history records that when Edwards preached this message in 1941, uh, he was regularly being interrupted by people in the congregation, blurting out with tears in their face, what must I do to be saved? They couldn't wait for him to get the sermon done. They just kept... Wait, 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 wait. What must I do to be saved? I've, I've heard enough. I, okay, God's angry at me So what do I do to remedy that people kept interrupting him in the message? I've been interrupted in, in sermons before but never quite like that. That would be a, a, f- a fun interruption The stories are told by historians as well that that people during the sermon and thereafter were actually clinging uh, clinging to the pillars of the church because they were afraid of death and slipping into hell The historians of this era, again, they they tie this to a Great Awakening. You know, it's got a Wikipedia entry and everything, the first Great Awakening, you can look it up, and churches were filled to the brim in this era. And I submit to you that people back then didn't like that message any more than people do now. Well, tonight, I want to talk about God's anger, and I want to talk about Good Friday. When we understand God's anger and what happened on Good Friday, we can see the oxymoron of the name Good Friday. Good Friday. Uh, We were driving in the car uh, tonight, and I had, I won't name any names so as to not embarrass anyone, but I had some of my kids in the car, and they were debating whether or not it was Black Friday or Good Friday. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting, you know. It's like, well, I I think we should call it Black Friday, but we might confuse people, you know. Well, then people would definitely come then, Black Friday, because that's when you're giving away everything after Thanksgiving, and everything's supposed to be on sale and what have you. But Good Friday truly is Black Friday. Um, on the one hand it, it's oxymoronic there's there's nothing good about it. You have an innocent man who's tortured to death in front of everyone it's, it's It's absolutely horrible. but on the other hand, what that accomplishes for us is wonderful, and so we call it good, but it is indeed oxymoronic it's it's cheeky it's it's meant to grab you like. Like, no, 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 those two things don't belong together, Good and Friday. Well, the title of my sermon tonight is Seeing Red. It is a play on the saying that we have in our culture, seeing red when a person experiences anger. So I thought it'd be a good play to talk about the doctrine of the anger of God. It is a fitting phrase, uh, seeing red, because uh, it's visibly evident, in particular in people with fair skin, their faces start to turn red, they get that facial flushing and rising testosterone, and you see, hell, something's not right, their face is red. They must be uh, uh, upset with me. Scientists have even studied the phenomenon of those who see see red, not just in the flushing of their face, but in, in their observation. And it happens to be, at least some science is reporting, that that people with more hostile personality types actually respond uh, more to the color red. Quoting from one study I wrote, angry people really do see red where others do not. Scientists have shown in a study examining humankind's ancient association of the color red with anger, aggression, and danger, researchers found when shown images uh, that were neither fully red nor fully blue, people with hostile personalities were much more likely to see red. Researchers at the North Dakota State University asked a group of people which color they preferred, red or blue. Participants then completed personality tests, and the results showed that those who opted for red tended to be more interpersonally more hostile Uh, During a second test, the participants were presented with images which were faded. So, so they were uh, red or blue or to some extent, and those who predominantly saw red scored 25% higher on indicators of hostility in the personality section of the test. So, uh, anyone seeing red tonight? Uh, Maybe I've triggered someone. Uh, So, we have this association with anger and redness. In fact, last year there was that Pixar movie, Turning Red, that was distributed by Disney that had the family with the teenager um, who is taking care of this pagan temple, and it turns out the teenager, when her emotions get going, she can transform into a large red panda because she's a part of a line of these, like, ancient uh, protectors for the village and the people in the past or whatever. Hopefully, I didn't spoil that for anyone. But all of this to say, we culturally associate red with elevated emotions and anger, specifically. We can think of uh, bullfighting, think of matadors who use red capes to agitate bulls. Bulls see red and bulls charge. The bulls want blood, which of course is red also. So playing on the phenomenon of this correlation between anger and redness, it's interesting to note that we actually see red used metaphorically even inside of the Bible this way. In fact, Jesus uses it in Matthew 16 when he speaks of a group of people and he, he actually quotes a local saying about those who saw redness in the sky Uh, as a sign of judgment. Uh, Quoting from verse 3 of Matthew 16, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening, Jesus cited. We have a similar saying today in our culture, red skies in the morning, sailors warning, you see. So this idea of red, uh, uh, threat, danger, anger is, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon that transcends certain human cultures. It's worth noting that redness in the Bible is also associated with sin. Well, we got the prophet Isaiah in front of us in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. He speaks of sin being red as crimson. He describes sins that are as scarlet. Now, I say all of this by way of introduction to set up tonight's Good Friday message reflecting on Isaiah 53. Good Friday, of course, is a holiday for the Christian in which it is traditional for us to gather in the evening with our churches to commemorate the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross of Calvary. So, what does this have to do with seeing red? Well, I'm glad you asked because on the cross of Calvary, follow me, there is a sense in which we can say God sees red. God sees red. Now, I say in a sense, I want to qualify it because there are things relative to humans seeing of red that is not true of God's seeing of red. Specifically, when we speak of seeing red as humans, it typically refers to someone who has become so angered that it controls them. It enrages the person and they're sort of taken over by it. In the case of God, God is never taken over by emotion. He is never out of, uh, out of control with emotion. Further, His divine anger isn't something that comes and goes... like our experience with anger. I get angry. It, it, it hits me. I get angry. And then, you know, after a while it fades or I process and I get over it... and then I find something else to get angry about. You know, ask the people who live with me. I, I get angry. Stuff happens. What is this? Now, in fact... With God, however, God's emotional life is much different because none of God's emotions come and go. God never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. God never gets grumpy. God never gets hangry, you know, when you're hungry and angry. God never gets uh, happy. Now, mind you, God is fully and perfectly happy. The thing is that his happiness doesn't come and go, nor does his anger come and go. The thing is, God is all-knowing. So he's never surprised or caught off guard. So he doesn't get angry about things because he, he knows everything that's that's going to, to happen. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient is the word that we use for that doctrine. Further, God is immutable. God does not change. So, so you know, he doesn't have to change and get angry or get happy because he didn't know that this was going to happen and so he's got to adapt to new situations because he's caught off guard. We have to do that. We have to adapt. We are surprised. People catch us off guard. We wake up on the wrong side of the bed, not God. Now in addition to God's omniscience, God doesn't change in his emotions because God is perfect. What is imperfect requires change. But what is perfect by definition cannot change, for any change would entail that something was wrong beforehand or something was lacking beforehand or something needed improvement beforehand. Um, I know there's a war going on between Apple and Windows, so I don't, I don't want to step in the war zone here. Uh, I'm stuck on the Windows platform, and whenever something happens, all the Apple friends, you should get a Mac, you should get a Mac. But here's the thing about Windows. Windows is always updating. Usually Saturday night when I got to, you know, work on the sermon or whatever, it's, it's, it's always updating. Windows always comes out with new updates, new security updates, and why? Because it's not perfect. And all the Apple people said, Amen. Well, Apple has updates too, but software has to change because it has to improve. It's imperfect. God, however, is perfect, so he doesn't change. He doesn't update. Again, this is, this is the doctrine we call immutability. Because God alone is immutable or changeless, it's it's the case that He alone is perfect. He's the only perfectly perfect being. We have to change because we're not perfect. In a given situation, we lack something, and so then we change to adapt to accommodate uh, in reaction or so as to improve uh, for, for the next time or whatever. And emotionally, that means that we're always in flux. Our emotions are coming and going. Our emotions are changing. And brothers and sisters, if you're not careful with your emotions, they can get out of control and they can take you over, they can end your friendships, and they can ruin your life. So when we see red, we can be taken over by anger and we could do things that we later regret, which is why Scripture, of course, warns us not to let the sun go down on our anger. It's not good for us to be brewing over things, even if it's a righteous kind of anger. Because we are imperfect and we are changing and we are sinful. But none of that is true of God. So when God sees red, He is in full control. When God sees red, His anger is not imperfect, His anger is perfect. His anger is always right, His anger is never wrong. The perfect God makes no mistakes, and again, He never changes. Now this is good news, because it means He's not going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed on us. This is good news, because while we're prone to wander and forget, and He doesn't. He's perfect. We have a perfect God who is not going to change on us. That gives us security. That gives us assurance. Your family can let you down. Your spouse can leave you. Your parents can abandon you. Your kids can abandon you. Every human relationship that you have is going to have this element of you could get let down, but not with God. So all of this to say God has emotions. Be sure. God is very emotional, but His emotions are perfect. And with regard to the experience of anger... We then understand, when we talk about God seeing red on Good Friday, understand He didn't get angry on Good Friday. Because God doesn't get emotions. They're always there perfect. If we want to get technical concerning the eternal attributes of God, anger is not an essential attribute of God. You see, before the creation of the world, when it was just God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in perfect communion, before there was this cosmos, and we know scientifically the cosmos comes into existence. The cosmological singularity, the Big Bang, it comes into existence. It wasn't always here. And if you want to get something in existence, if you want to get something, you have to have someone. So scientifically you have God. By way of revelation you have God. God before creation wasn't eternally angry. He's not just, I'm so, I, need to, I need to make something so I can be mad at it. I want to see some red right now. That, that, that's not the case. When we're talking about the attributes or the characteristics of God, we properly ground God's anger, not in some essential attribute of anger, but in the essential attribute of His holiness. Look up here, I'll give you a short quote from theologian Sinclair Ferguson. Strictly speaking, wrath is not an attribute of God. For something to be an attribute of God, it has to be something that God exercises before all worlds. It would be more appropriate to say that the wrath of God, or anger of God, is the manifestation of the holiness of God in the context of the sinfulness of man. So, within the Trinitarian relationship, that holiness is expressed among the members of the Trinity, but not by wrath. God's wrath, or God's divine anger, comes into the world when His holiness is assaulted by the parents of humanity. In the beginning, God created. Everything that has a beginning has a beginner. In the beginning, God created. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates humanity to be in His image, to enjoy what He enjoys in perfect fellowship in the God who is three in one. He makes man. He makes woman. He gives order to society. He, he creates the institution of family. He gives them everything they need to flourish. He pours His love on them and they respond by rebelling against Him. The, the beginning of the story is a story of unrequited love. And there in the beginning you see the holy God, that essential attribute of His holiness, now sees red. It manifests itself as red in the garden. God didn't get angry. It flows from His holiness which was always there. Further again, He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knew this was going to happen, so He's not caught off guard like, what are you guys doing? I can't believe this. He's all-knowing. He's God. Furthermore, He already had a plan from the very beginning that He ordained to remedy what we would do with the creation. In Revelation 13, 8, the Bible describes the cross of Calvary, Good Friday, as happening before the foundation of the world. Look at this verse, that all who dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb, who, the Lamb what? Who was slain before the foundation of the world. Adam and Eve didn't catch God off guard. We don't catch God off guard. God's not getting angry, God's holy. And so, so, so any rebellion against His holiness is going to incur that, but it's, it's, it's not that he's, he's now changing and he's, 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 he's going red-faced the way we do. That was just always there. You see, you can have a building that's blocking the sun on one side, and on the other side, the the sun is shining. You can move from a place of darkness to a place of light in regard to where you stand with the building. The building hasn't changed. The building hasn't moved. That was always there. And so too it is with God. He hasn't changed. He, He hasn't gone from a state of being happy to a state of being angry. It always flows from His eternal nature. When the apostles preached in Acts chapter 2, again we see reference like Revelation 13, 8, that God's not caught off guard. This was a part of the plan. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It states that Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked hands and have crucified and slain. Here you see the tension of human will and God's meticulous sovereignty over all things. For they are held responsible for what they've done to the Christ with their wicked hands, And yet they're also told that this was God's doing. This was God's determination. This was God's foreknowing. God wasn't caught off guard when he made this world and poured his love into it and the world rebelled against him. But God saw red. And his seeing of red wasn't just, you know, some human anger or something like this. It was a part of the plan to get us to Good Friday. You see this, you see this up here before the foundation of the world. You see this up here. God determined this before it happened. You see this right here in Isaiah 53. Who has, look at the text, verse 1, believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a tender shoot and, and a root out of the parched ground. And he had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus. The arm of the Lord He is said to be, which symbolizes the earthly manifestation of Yahweh. In Isaiah 51.5, we see and we read of this divine power, and here it is manifested in Isaiah 53 in a earthly person. That, that, this is the story from the very beginning that God promised to our mother and our father that He was going to send one through the seed of the woman who is going to end the rebellion and restore and reconcile humanity's relationship with God. There there is going to be this divine seed that comes. And as the prophets keep adding to the prophecy, we come to see by the time we get to the gospel accounts, God didn't send a third party to clean up the mess that we made. God came himself. The Father sent the Son and the Son became a man. He is the earthly manifestation. He is the arm of the Lord, Isaiah says. This is incarnation, God in the flesh. Verse 2 speaks of the shoot, who in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 11, where he extends on this, is the suffering servant figure who's tied to King David, whose Jesus' bloodline comes from. Though he is God's manifestation, he is, however, just like God at the very beginning. His love is unrequited. He's despised and rejected, the text says. He's a man of suffering. This is the story of Jesus. This is the history of the cross. Notice how the passage ends in verse 12 with him dying next to sinners, just as Jesus did. You have a a piece of artwork on your bulletin tonight of those sinners that he dies next to. Verse 9 even predicts the rich man who would give his tomb to Christ to lay in, which we see fulfilled in the Gospel accounts. Again, we see Good Friday was God's plan. So when I speak of God's anger or seeing red that night on Good Friday, know that God was not caught off guard. Because of this, God doesn't get angry in the way that you or I do. He knew that it was going to happen. Even more than knowing it, he planned it. The Father knew the day would come when his only begotten Son, who eternally dwelled with him in heaven, would go to earth, become a man, grow up and die. For people rejecting him and spitting on him. They would die. And the Father and the, the Spirit would watch the Son whom they love. And they would see red. The divine Godhead would see red. Now again... God wouldn't get angry. His holy wrath is already there. So while I'm describing the cross of Calvary at this moment in history when God the Father and the Spirit see red as the Eternal Son hangs bleeding out in a slow, agonizing death as He's mocked and slandered, I want us to wrap ourselves around this amazing God. God the Father sees red at the bloodthirsty and the blasphemous crowds. He sees red at what they're doing to His Son and whom He loves. But He sees red at more than them. He sees red somewhere else too. Where? On the cross. On the sacrifice being made for sinners. This is what we call the doctrine of propitiation. As theologian Charles Ryrie explains, and I'll put it up in front of you, propitiation means the turning away of wrath by an offering. In relation to soteriology, that's the study of salvation, propitiation means placating or satisfying the wrath of God by an atoning sacrifice of Christ. The word propitiation comes right out of the Bible in our Greek New Testament. Look, look up here at Romans chapter 3. You see the language in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that we would be just and the justifier the one who has faith in Christ. The word propitiation that is used here, you see highlighted in yellow, it comes from a Greek word, halasterios. Halasterios literally just means to propitiate. Again, it, it is, as you see here explained by Dr. Ryrie, that is a, uh, a, an offering that turns away the, the just wrath of another. It is worth noting, though, that this word, holasterios, uh, is the word that gets used when uh, the ancient Jewish people translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, because Greek was the lingua franca of the day. When they translated, follow me, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, the God who dwelled in the temple in Israel and His presence was there and and the sacrifices and the priesthood and all of that. There was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Well, when they translated that word for the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, they chose to use this word propitiation. They called the top of the Ark of the Covenant halasterios. Halasterios we translate in our English Bibles as the mercy seat. The mercy seat. That's a really good choice of words that those ancient translators did. Halasterios, propitiation, the appeasing of wrath. What happens on the mercy seat? Do you recall? The priests, they take the blood of the sacrifice and what do they do? They sprinkle it on the mercy seat. They, they go from the sacrifice, they take the blood, they go into the temple, they go into, through the veil, into the Holy of Holies, and the high priest takes the blood and puts it on the halasterios. He carries the blood of the sacrifice, puts it on the halasterios, and that is a symbol of God doing what? Forgiving the sins of His people. This is why in our public reading of Scripture tonight, Mark 15, it is significant the detail about the veil being torn as Jesus dies. You see, because, because the halasterios was being made. That payment, that propitiation was being made. No longer is the Holy of Holies the place where where that is done or where that is symbolized. Where it is symbolized now, the Holy of Holies, is in the cross of Calvary. So Paul, what he's doing here in Romans 3 in front of you, as he's citing Halasterios, he's taking you into this language from ancient days. He's explaining to you Good Friday with these technical terms so that we understand this. The ESV Study Bible has a wonderful explanation of this that I'd like to share with you. And I'll begin where it starts in verse 25. Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath so that His holiness was not compromised in forgiving sinners. Some scholars have argued that the word propitiation should be translated expiation, that is the wiping off of sin. But the word cannot be restricted to wiping away sins as it also refers to the satisfaction or appeasement of God's wrath, turning it to favor. God's righteous anger needed to be appeased before sin could be forgiven and God in His love sent His Son who offered Himself willingly to satisfy God's holy anger against sin. In this way God demonstrated His righteousness which here refers particularly to His holiness and justice. God's justice was called into question because in His patience He had overlooked former sins. In other words, how could God, as utterly the Holy One, tolerate human sin without inflicting full punishment on human beings? Paul's answer is that God looked forward to the cross of Christ where the full payment of guilt of sin would be made, where Christ would die in the place of sinners, in the Old Testament propitiation. The complete satisfaction of God's wrath is symbolically foreshadowed in, and then it goes off to rattle various prophecies and whatnot. So this, this doctrine that I'm explaining to you, this, this God who is immutable and omniscient and, and has these, these pure and perfect emotions, it's all coming to head in the cross of Calvary as judgment is falling not just on the crowds for what they have done, but judgment is falling on the man hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking us back to chapter 22 in the Psalms. The doctrine of propitiation carries with it an ancient idea of appeasement, satisfaction. Sinful humans turning to an holy God, confessing their sin, and and being made right. God doesn't just forgive us for what we've done, He makes the payment too. Right? Like if I I borrowed something that was important to you and I broke it, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, it was my kids, Uh, you know, probably would be, but uh, you know, you can say, I forgive you, right? And I Oh, thank you. That's such a relief. I thought you were going to hate me forever. But that doesn't make the object that I broke all of a sudden fixed. Someone still needs to pay for this to, to make it right. God doesn't just give us forgiveness, but He actually makes the payment to propitiate the wrath that is due at us. He is right to be angry at us for what we have done towards Him And instead of being angry towards us, he has chosen to inflict his anger on another in our place. He was despised. Isaiah 53, look at it, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed, and him was was stricken and smitten and afflicted. He was pierced through, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell on Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. He gets all of our dirt thrown on Him. And the the wrath that that dirt deserves. We give all that to Him. And in exchange, He gives us what? Healing. Well-being, the text says. He was oppressed, verse 7. He was afflicted. He did not open His mouth. But the Lord, verse 10, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he himself bore the sin of many. That's propitiation. That's someone taking that, that seeing red anger that, is, that belongs to us and says, I'll take the bullet for you. And worse than a bullet, it's a cross. Easton's Bible Dictionary explains this important doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation is that uh, by which it becomes consistent with God's character and government to pardon and bless the sinner. The propitiation does not procure his love or make him loving. It only renders it consistent for him to exercise his love towards sinners. You see... People, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, if God's love, you know, God should just like, I, I believe God's love, so he, so he loves everyone, and he just loves everyone. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, but like, wouldn't it really be unloving to let, like, guilty people go free? Like, say I killed your spouse, and let's just go dark. I kill your kids, too, and uh, I get caught, and I go before the judge, and... You know it's all on your all on your ring door camera. I butchered them all in front of the ring door And so I'm guilty as charged. I got blood on my hands, and I even admit it. Yeah, I did it I couldn't stand them, Uh, you know, I I did it your honor and 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 the judge says well I'm glad you admitted that because I'm really a judge who's a loving judge and you seem like a good person to me and uh, you know you've done a lot in your community or whatever so You know, I mean, come to think of it, think of all the people you haven't killed. It was just these three you did. So your goodness outweighs your bad. I'm a judge of love. You you, you go and, you know, just enjoy life, you know. What would the person whose family I just slaughtered have to say about such a judge? Would you describe that judge as loving? No, it would be the antithesis of love. You see, we all know intuitively that love and punishment go together. We know intuitively that love and wrath go together. If you love someone, if you protect them, you come against a, a, a person who loves another person and you do harm to that person, you're going to get the wrath of the first party. We all understand that this works together. The problem, however, is in the predicament we don't like to admit at which party we are, the offending versus the, the offended. We, we like to think of ourselves innocent, so we don't like to think of ourselves as being on this side of, of God's judgment. But it's important for us to understand this. Not to fight with it so that we can humbly bow down before God and receive His forgiveness. Receive what He's done in Christ. These aren't doctrines to be bored by or doctrines to fight with. These are doctrines to to give us great joy and to open our hearts that we would be reconciled to God. It is important what we think about God. A.W. Tozer rightly began his, his... popular book the knowledge of the holy with this what comes into our minds when we think about god is the most important thing about us and as a pastor this is one of my passions that is to shepherd us as a church to think truly and deeply of our god and of his knowledge and and that that knowledge would come to bear in everything that we believe and everything that we face and how we live our lives and at the foundation we must understand that god is different than us god's holy god's immutable God's perfect, God has every right to be angry at us for what we have made, but but with our lives and of this world, we've rebelled against Him. He sees red at us and and He's right to do so, but He's God and we're not. A famous preacher once said to someone who was, uh, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind and all, you know, sort of wrestling, you know, why does God do it that way and why is God like this and The preacher responded by saying, well, I'll tell you what, when you get your own universe, you can do it your way. Uh, And and the the point of that is we'll never have our own universe. We we are not God. Um, We are made in his image to be sure, and so we have some similarity, but it only goes one way, from him to us. I say that so that we're careful in projecting onto God, because as I often say, there is a God who is, and there's a God that humans want, and the two are often not the same. As one commentator explains, at his core, God is different than us. His love is not a contingent or dependent love. His anger is not a moodiness or a flash of heat. It is the kind of love and anger that only an infinite and infinitely perfect being can possess. God is steady in a way nothing else will ever be. There is indeed no variation or shifting shadow in him which is frightening to inherently shifty beings. However, Christ crucified means that the nearness of God is for us for the relational alienation between Him and us has been undone. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and also in 4.10, it says this, that Christ is the propitiation of our sins. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about the anger of God as I would if it were not for Christ. The New Testament speaks of God's wrath abiding in John 3.36. His wrath abides on all those who do not believe in the Son. You you either let him make the payment for you or you make the payment yourself. In which case, the red that he saw on the cross of Calvary that stood in your place will be applied to you. I would much rather have that handled by the one who is perfect and can handle it for me. The wrath of God is satisfied in the cross. There's a hymn that we sing. It's entitled, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. There is this line in the song where it says, On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And it's interesting to note that uh, most recently there was a Presbyterian denomination that liked the song, but they wanted to substitute the words, As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They, they didn't like that much, and so they, they changed it to, uh, uh, On that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. I thought, what is it with our hesitancy to talk about God being mad at us? I think we're a trophy culture for one, so everyone gets a prize. You know, everyone's first place. Everyone wins. You know, my kid's t-ball game, we, you don't keep score. You know, everyone wins. And, you know, but the dads aren't in the corner keeping score to be sure. So uh, you don't want to talk about, you know, you don't want to talk about it. Helmut Richard Niebuhr wrote a book in the 1930s called The Kingdom of God in America. And he criticized this kind of uh, progressive, uh, liberal, if you will, I don't mean that in the political sense, um, movement away from these traditional understandings of God. He's got this line, and it's one that's quite prophetic. He says, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. They just don't want to talk about that bloody cross where the father saw red on his son and punished him, crushed him, crushed him. And it pleased him to do so in order to free us. And the people who balk with this, often they forget who God is. Which, going back to the Tozer quote, it's really important what you think about God because I've, I've heard people say, oh, this Good Friday stuff, oh, him taking punishment for us, it sounds like cosmic child abuse. The father, the father's just walking down the street with his son, and then you know someone across the street like mugs a lady, and then the father just backhands the son into the mouth, and the son's like, what's that for? It's a, That guy across the street robbed that lady, and someone's got to pay for it. And smacks his kid again. You know, you say, you say I'm calling the Department of Children's Services on that man. Um, uh, because that's a horrible thing to do. You say, yes, but you've created a horrible illustration because that's not who God is. God, one, doesn't get angry. We've already covered that. But, but also, God is triune. So, so the Son is God. And the Father is God. And the Spirit is God. And they together share one will. And they have agreed to do this. They want to do this. They, they've chosen to do this for us. And the one who is doing it for us it isn't just God, He's also man. So as He hangs on the cross as a man, it's actually just the penalty that He's taking because that penalty was due to humanity and He's a human. But as God, it's His prerogative to forgive. If He's not God, He can't forgive. And if He's not man, then He can't take the penalty. One of my favorite theologians, Gerhardus Voss, explains this. He says, Christ's work as mediator must possess an infinite value since that work must extend to the satisfaction of the eternal wrath of God. A mere man can never endure this wrath, as is already apparent from the eternal punishment of those who are lost. We would have to remain under that wrath eternally simply because our human nature is not able to endure its intensity. What we thus lack for bearing this wrath in its intensiveness must, for the lost, be paid extensively. They bear the infinite wrath of God through their endless punishment. Christ, however did not have to be swallowed up in this death. He had to come through it victoriously. It had to become evident that death could not hold him. For his humanity that would be impossible. His deity could cause that bearing of the burden of the endless wrath by his humanity without his humanity succumbing or being destroyed. Now if I lost you, let me give you a simple passage that says it's so much better than Voss because this is written by the Spirit of the living God. Romans chapter 5. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's that's this. That's Isaiah 53. The Lord was pleased to crush him, verse 10. That what? That he would render himself a guilt offering. Right? As a result of the anguish of his soul, verse 11 that he'll see it and be what? satisfied. The knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities, having now been justified. Isaiah 53:11. Justify the many. To be justified is to be pardoned for what you have done. To be justified is is to be declared in God's courtroom innocent for what you have done. This is this is the gospel that there's this holy God that is right to be angry with us, who has every right to take back life from us, let us die, and punish us even after we die in the afterlife. He has every right to do that, and yet he has chosen in his love to say, even though you've rejected me, I still love you. Even though you want nothing to do with me, I still love you. I'm going to die for you while, while you're enemies of me and show you my love. While we were still sinners, the text says, he dies for us. I'm going to go and seek seek and save the lost, he says. In fact, when when he finds us lost, he grabs a hold of us and we kick and scream the whole way. And he takes us home and reconciles us and changes our hearts so the kicking and screaming is gone. You are in Christ, you know this, you've experienced this. You've been in the darkness and you've felt his power grab a hold of you through this message of the Gospel and you've heard that, and you've felt that, and you've, you've felt those red, that red divine wrath that was due your way, and you feel it lifted. The good news is good news because of the bad news. The good news doesn't make sense without the bad news. The bad news is God sees red. The good news is He chose to see red on the cross of Calvary on the sun in your place, so that when He sees you, the red is gone. And that's an eternal red. It's not a changing red that is fleeting with time. It's an eternal red that would stand on you for the rest of your life beyond the grave, an everlasting red that would be just because you rebelled against an eternal being. The punishment fits the crime. But oh God, isn't he good? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to put the red on the cross and my son is going to bleed out red blood in your place. And so tonight as we come to the communion table and we have these little cups with juice in it and uh, Christ himself said this, this cup it's a picture of what I'm going to do for you. On, on, on uh, Going up to Good Friday in the Garden of Gethsemane he's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane he's sweating so thick it's, it's thick like, like blood and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father if it's your will let this cup pass from me. You see, cups in Scripture are often pictures of judgment. In the book of Revelation, there's these cups and bowls that the Lamb of God pours out in judgment in the last days. Jesus says, this cup, right? I'm going to drink this. I'm going to the cross for you. And every time that you drink it in remembrance of me, when my people gather, you can remember that I drank the cup of judgment in your place. And that it was my body that was broken in your place. The text, Isaiah 53, describes that body being broken. Those bones being pulled out of joint the Scripture describes. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. Isn't that incredible? The Gospel sounds very strange to a culture that has been told from a very early age that they're perfect, that loving themselves is virtuous, that their heart is always right and should always be trusted, that organized religion should not be trusted, and that there's nothing more important in your life than being happy. For, for people who've, who've been steeped in, in that religion, the Gospel is going to sound very strange. But this is why we talk about God's holiness and His anger, to, to rattle that and you realize, look, no one's perfect. Uh, loving yourself, mm, probably not the way to go. Following your heart, Mm, works in Disney movies, but not in real life, uh, you know, distrusting all, you know, religion, mm, you know, there's, well, there's a good amount that you should, but, you know, that you shouldn't rule this out, you see. If, if, if you understand there's a good and loving God, and you understand that you've crossed him, and you understand that creates a predicament, and you understand that there's only one thing that solves that predicament, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, hanging on a cross, dying for you. Now, imagine for the first disciples... Right, We have in the gospel accounts. They, they miss this part. They miss this part. They run off into the darkness scared. They, they scatter. They're on the run. Rome's going to get us next. It, it, they, they, that was, they, were, they made an example out of him. They're coming for us next. They all run. They're scared to death. And yet again, there we have a picture of his grace. Because what does Jesus do when he rises up on Sunday? He doesn't go run and find them and chew them out. <laughs> you know... uh, uh, Peter, get over here, you know. It's like, he goes and he loves them. He goes and he rescues them. He goes and reconciles them to himself. He forgives them. He's a gracious God. That forgiveness is available to you tonight. We're going to respond to the message by by, by singing. We're going to respond by coming to the table. Um, Before I do, a a close to the sermon and a, a prayer. May the God of all healing and forgiveness draw us to himself and cleanse us from all our sins. May we behold tonight the glory of the Son, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. May Almighty God, who sent His Son into the world to save sinners, bring you pardon and peace tonight, now, and forever. May the Father of all mercies cleanse us from our sins and restore us in His image to the praise and the glory of His name through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the God of love and power forgive you and free you from your sins, heal and strengthen you by His Spirit, and raise you to new life in Christ our Lord. May the Father forgive us by the death of His Son, and strengthen us to live in the power of the Spirit here tonight and all of our days. May the God of our Father forgive us our sins and bring us to the fellowship of His table here tonight with His saints this evening and forever. Amen? Father, I thank You for this evening. I thank you for what was accomplished on Calvary. My mind is blown thinking that you saw red on your son. And of course, the son is one with you, so he wasn't a third party in this. We give thanks to your son. We give thanks to the Spirit who opened our eyes to see the son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come for us and that you stood... In, in our place, making a payment that we owed. The fact of the matter is we, we owed a debt that we could not pay. And you paid it for us. And you didn't pay it for us begrudgingly. You love us. Oh, the, the love of God. We are, we are floored at what you have done for us. Lord, and I pray that all who are here this evening would know your love, not just conceptually, in words and propositions, but but personally in their hearts that they would know You and You would be known in them. Draw us to You as we come to the table, as we sing songs of worship tonight to close the evening. I pray that Your Spirit would minister to us from the truths that we have just feasted upon. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.